Hi, I'm Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. On this occasion, my guest is mezzo-soprano Kelly O'Connor. I've known Kelly for probably more than a decade, and one of the things that I think you'll find delightful about this conversation is her irrepressible energy and the most hearty laugh of any mezzo, well, perhaps any singer I know. We're going to be talking about her unlikely path to becoming an opera singer, how it all started basically uh, at the age of five when she was singing around the house and has continued to this day singing not around the house, but in every house that has opera or symphonic music in the world. My guest today is mezzo-soprano Kelly O'Connor. 2019 marks the 10th anniversary of your debut with Cincinnati Opera, Kelly. Can you remember for us maybe some of your very first impressions of the company? You came to us in a summer when we were doing four operas on Spanish themes, and it was an opera for which you were already well-known. That is the role of Lorca in Osvaldo Goliath's Aina Damar. Um, what were some of your first impressions when you got here? Well, I think that's the best way to go into a new company with something that you feel just fits like a glove. You know, for me, we had the original cast and it just was so incredible to bring something that I love and cherish so much to a new audience. I That's what I've loved about that piece, that I've been able to take it everywhere. And here it was so special because Dawn was here and Jessica and, and it was a new production, which I always love because that can also enhance what I do already. And I'm not just doing the same old, same old thing I've done everywhere else. And it makes me think of things in a new and different way and how to say them differently. Uh, so I think it was really, it was really exciting for me to be part of that. I know I'm already deep diving into one particular aspect, but you bring up something that you created pretty much for all the professional audiences, the role of Lorca. And you were a kid. <laughs> I was. When you started. <laughs> when you got the score for the first time, Osvaldo Golihoff writes in a real particular way, uh, not really notating everything, <laughs> leaving a lot up to the performer. So how'd you go about learning it? You know, it's it's still such such a special memory for me. I, he came to Los Angeles, and I was studying there at the time uh, at UCLA, and he just had this little pink book, and it had some notes in it about a horse and some water, and then he had an aria for me, and my Desde Mi Ventana was in there complete. He had written the whole thing, and that was one of the things that he, just from hearing my audition tape, he had never met me. He had only heard me warm down, as I say, because it's the lowest thing I've ever sung. Um, and he just came up with this piece that is me, without even really having knowing me as a person. Or, But um, that's what was in the score. It was so interesting. And I still have that original little red book. And, you know, he says, I still remember you came. You had your little sweater tied around you. And you had your little tape recorder. And I recorded him playing, playing my aria. I mean, it was just... A magic moment, you know, to have that with him by myself. So, um, yes, I was very green. He always said that. It was just, I had never done any operas. I had only been in choir. And something about my voice just sparked that interest in him. And so I think it was beneficial that I was so green. 
mm-hmm. because I had no idea. I'm like, who's this Don Upshaw? Is this Gold- what's Tanglewood? I don't know. Where am I going? You know, everything to me was new and unknown. So it kind of was better that way that I didn't know what I was stepping into. <laughs> I was in the audience the night it premiered uh, with uh, another one-act opera that has vanished without a trace, and probably rightfully so. <laughs> but I remember being simply blown away. And I know this was the first version of the opera. He went and made some revisions after that. But the almost otherworldly power of his writing, especially for all the parts are wonderful, but especially for your voice, he seems to be able to conjure from the human voice something that is almost primal. It's notated music. But it's almost primal. Well, it allows, and what's amazing is that it allows a classical musician to tap into that. Because, you know, I feel he's very influenced by folk singers and people that definitely don't do what I do. And he wants me to be influenced by that. But he still notates it in a way that I can understand it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) being of the classical mind. But I'm still able to make all these new sounds for me and for the audience, you know. But I'm still singing like I sing. And um, I think he really... Because that was so early on, it just forced me to discover things about myself very soon in my career, yeah. you know, and it, in, it influenced everything, all the next steps I took. You have uh, done a great deal of music by living composers, uh, and we joked together after you were here and after we've worked together elsewhere, please hire me for something by a dead composer. <laughs> and I true. remember uh, you came back to us to sing a role that you might not initially associate with Kelly O'Connor, if you know her from the music of John Adams and Osvaldo Golihoff, Suzuki and Butterfly. Yes. Um, uh, what were some of your impressions of doing that part? Well, to me, that experience and the one following here uh, was very influenced by the cast. The people that you chose to be part of that opera really still have a lasting mark in my life. And oh, I, Maria Luigia Borsi, of yes, course. Yes, and Roberto De Candia, yeah, exactly. who I just adored. And we were like family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that opera, it's so important that as um, Suzuki, I feel this extreme connection to her. And Maria, I just felt so much sympathy for her and and I just loved playing that part with her. I think the fact that she was the, she was Butterfly really influenced my love for that part. Because at first, you know, yes, I'm like, okay, I'm moving the shoji, I've got a child, I've got the tea, I'm probably the most clumsy person you could hire for this job. <laughs> this might not be your best choice. But, you know, I just had to, but I'm, I'm me, so I'm going to try to bring what I can to that. And I just really felt for her, so I had to live that journey and make it my own. It was a great challenge for me. But it was a challenge you met not only superbly, but in a sympathetic way that um, is rare. And I, I, you talk, you've, you've hit upon something I'd love for you to expand upon a little bit. What is What are some of the aspects of that chemistry on stage when a cast gels together? What are some of the things that you take away from that experience that make it so special? Oh, my gosh. Well, besides the friendships, which, you know, surprisingly, it's hard to have lasting relationships in this career. You would think, oh, we have this intense, you know, three months or two months, and we're, it's like camp, we're all together, we're living together, or we're working every day, and then you never see these people again, and it can be so devastating mm-hmm. that you've created this beautiful thing, and then they're gone. It's an opsheet, as I say, in the opposite. But um, for me, I still see these people all the time. 
Mm. You know, they're in my life. I went to Italy and I saw Roberto and he said, if you come to Italy and you do not see me, I will never forgive you. And I just love that. You know, I mean, that's beautiful. And Hadley, someone from the um, Flatermouse that I did as well, good friends. I see him all the time. So it really just also for me, not really being an opera person, you know, an opera buff, if you will. um, I think it really changed my opinion of it because I'm always kind of like, well, is this going to be... You know, am I going to really enjoy this as much as I love doing concert music because I can be myself? I really love doing concert as well. But it's just those experiences. I mean, I don't know if I can do Flatermouse again because that cast was so spectacular and I had the time of my life. And I never thought I would speaking Russian dialect dialogue. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, and I don't know if it's a particular perversity of my own personality knowing you well. So first, the first time you come to us, it's with a role with which you are identified. The second time you come to us, you sing Suzuki in a Puccini opera. And I bet if any of your living composer friends saw your name in that program book, they'd have thought, she has she lost her mind? <laughs> and the third thing I come and ask you to do is comedy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a pants roll. You're used to doing pants roll because, right. of course, Lorca is a pants roll. And as, as a mezzo-soprano, you do roles mm-hmm. that are nominally male on stage but require a female singer. Mm-hmm. Um so did doing comedy for the first time give you any chills and it was fantastic. willies? <laughs> it was so fantastic. But again, it's the cast. I mean, I felt like I was just feeding off of this energy that was created in the room. I mean, a lot of things happened kind of in an improv way, which does not happen in opera. I mean, you're not able to have this sort of just, okay, so now we're going here. This is, okay, so now I should. I mean, it's great because then you're so present. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt. Like, even though we're singing music that's definitely dictated and controlled and this is what you're doing, but we're not. We're just making it our own and living really in the moment. And I think that was just thanks to everyone in the cast. I mean, everyone was just so funny. It's like, you got to try to do something. (laughs) Otherwise, you're not going to stand out. As Anna Russell used to say in a completely different context, you not only filled the part, you overflowed it a little bit. <laughs> exactly. But you have made quite a career as a concert singer, especially in working with new music. Something that's from the very beginning of your career, how did you how did you find that path? I know. It's been interesting. I think because of my start at Tanglewood and with the Goliath that people thought I could do um, maybe more challenging things and new things. And so... You know, my first job, this is going to sound pretentious maybe, but was Cleveland Orchestra. <laughs> Your first professional job? Yes, Cleveland Orchestra. I sang Stravinsky, Requiem Canticles. And that's because Peter Chorney came to Tanglewood and heard me. And wow. So it just kind of, I went there. I went to concert first. And um, I think also because I have a rather low voice, it might be kind of more tricky to cast me as obviously in an You're opera. You're not going to be singing Cherubino or the composer. Right. right. Although you have the figure for it. You're, you're the tall, typical right. gamin mm-hmm. mezzo-soprano. But your voice, because I, I can remember when I first heard you, I thought, wow, contralto. Right. I mean, it was, it was, it has a richness. But, but I have also noticed over the last five years, especially, the voice is ascending a little bit. You have, you still have that rich lower register that is, that you have one of those identifiable voices, which is such a pleasure for me. When I hear something on the radio and you're singing, I, I can tell it's you in two notes. Um, and very few singers, particularly in this cookie-cutter age of singing, are blessed with that instant identity. But there's that sort of smokiness mm-hmm. in the lower sort of third of your voice that is genuinely yours and yours alone. But it's getting brighter at the That's top, true. which is great. It's great. You know, I've, I've actually been challenged to sing higher things because for a, a long time, people just loved that 
octave that I sang in, and mm-hmm. I was just singing there all the time. Yeah. So I didn't even know what was really up there to experiment with, you know. And then you get these challenges from your agent. Can you sing this? Can you do this? And it's been great to kind of push myself and see what I can do. That's fascinating. So in, uh, as a singer starting out, let's say, in your mid-20s, because of the color of your voice, people weren't going to hire you for the typical mezzo stuff. You weren't mm-hmm. going to get hired, as I said, for Cherubino mm-hmm. or Zdenka or any of those those pants rolls, mm-hmm. particularly composer, for mm-hmm. which you would be perfectly suited. Mm-hmm. And then you get into, you know, as it were, the next decade of your career, the early maturity of your 30s, and you're got, you've got this path. You sort of, it's like, it's like the, the pianist who all of a sudden can sidestep all those competitions because all of a sudden he's been or she's been, you know, taken up by the Cleveland Orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that some of that sort of in the vineyards work you didn't have to do. It's true. Yeah. That is very true. It's but now you're true. coming back to some of the slightly higher repertoire in your work. Mm-hmm. I am. I am. I have to say, I just did Das Lied von der Erde, the Mahler, last week uh, or two weeks ago in Dallas, and it feels really good. And forever it just was so scary. I yeah. mean, it just sits very high for me. But, you know, now I'm – and it's exciting for me to be able to, at this point – find new things to sing. I mean, that's a challenge. You know, I don't want to just become... Um... The go-to Mahler to mezzo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know? I get it. It's good I for me it. to challenge myself, too. And it's it's just been such a learning experience for my instrument as well. One of the things that I've always marveled about a fellow mezzo-soprano, and she said this in an interview once, uh, the Italian mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli, she said, about every five years, I change it up. She said, I'm not doing it on purpose. I don't have some sort of absolute plan. But about every five years, I get restless artistically, and I want to do something different so that I don't get typecast as, yeah, she's going to sing Cenerentola until she's old enough to be a grandma. Right. And you seem to be doing something quite similar uh, in that you you still have this allegiance to the living composers. And I want to spend a little time talking about your special relationship with John Adams because I identify the, the vocal melos of his work so much with the work you've done with him but um so i mean have you has this ever crossed your mind that this is sort of a regular cyclical thing in your life that every few years or so something happens and you're doing something different or is it just natural i think maybe both i think Mm -hmm. it's a plan you know because i have an amazing agent who is like family to me and he you know I think never wants to see me stop singing. So it's great to reinvent, you know, reinvent <laughs> no, for many he has reasons. To pay his rent. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, because I do, I, I'm hungry. Mm. You know, I love, that's why I also love new music. I love being able to sing something for the first time for people. Like, I don't have anyone in my ear. I, I'm not copying anybody. I'm creating right. this in the moment. And that's so fantastic. Because for so much of my life when I was young, I would just listen to everyone. And I'm a very good copycat. <laughs> Uh-huh. So I think it really influenced how I would sing, you know, Voque Sepete, or if I had audition arias, I think I really was trying to replicate what I had heard. So now for me, if I get a MIDI file, maybe singers hate getting that MIDI file, but for me, that's not a voice. I love it. So I will learn the notes, and then anything I bring to it is me. Wow. It's all fresh and new. So I really, I really like that challenge that I just, I'm the one that's coming up with this, you know, brand new idea. I had this uh, singer come up to me who had done Ina Damar somewhere. You know, and they said, yeah, I just based, you know, I listened to your recording and you're my, you're the Lorca. I mean, that's insane to me that people will come up and say, yeah, you're the person. I mean, you know. You're being copycatted now already. (laughs) But that's. 
that's fantastic. I mean, you know, how cool is that? I think we should all want to do that because it forces us to not to step out of our box and kind of maybe be a little uncomfortable and make not pretty sounds all the time and figure things out. You know, you hit on something right there is that quite often young singers are, uh, I remember this interview that Renee Fleming gave once about um, this extraordinary afternoon she had with Leontine Price and how Leontine Price said to her the most important piece of advice of her career, which is you're going to be well-known and you're going to have everybody tell you what they think is best for you. And she called it the noise. She said, you're going to have to spend most of your energy shutting out the noise uh, that surrounds you when you become well-known. And it would seem to me one of the things that you have been able to do is to really know yourself as a singer, but also be still willing to discover things about yourself. You've got, you seem to be, uh, as an artist, you seem to be quite centered. Uh, did this come naturally? Is this something that's hard won? I know. It's so interesting when you put these things into words. I've never thought of it that way. But I, I also think I've been guided in a way that allowed me to just be hmm. myself. And I was never forced, you know, never forced to maybe take a role that maybe, uh, you know, just wasn't right and didn't feel great. I think everything just kind of really happened organically. I can think of maybe just a few times when I thought, well, this... We're going to chop this done. up to learning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One and done. One and done. We're not <laughs> exactly. going there. We're not going there again. Yeah, it's not so much. So it's just been, you know, again, because I was, you know, surrounded by brilliance from the beginning. I mean, Don, Osvaldo, Robert Spano, my first professional conductor I ever worked with. You know, I mean, it's just, that's ridiculous. You started it's at just, the top. I did. And speaking <laughs> of starting at the top, how did you meet John Adams, America's most celebrated, <laughs> prolific, living composer? Peter Sellers. Um, Peter mm, Sellers, the, actually. The director, Peter Sellers. Yes. He um, he had this, this idea for the gospel according to The Other Mary, which is the piece that John and I collaborated on. And Peter said it should be Kelly playing the role of Mary Magdalene. And so um, this is actually funny because I had sung uh, El Nino, which is his Nativity Oratorio, which I love is probably one of my favorite pieces. Desert Island, top five, El Nino. Um, and so I sent him a recording and I was very worried because El Nino is very high. Right. So and I even, mean, and, and then especially for you, yes, fifteen years ago. I mean, ago. that's yeah. yes, it's high, it's high for everyone. So um, any mezzo, but uh, so I sent him very low things. I was sending him, <laughs> you know, Seven Deadly Sins and the Lottie Lenya Key. I mean, I was like anything, Lieberson, Neruda. I mean, it was low. I don't think there was anything above this tab whatsoever. <laughs> so you know, great. He said, "Thanks, thanks for the CD." So I get to his house in Berkeley, and he starts playing the opening scene, which has a measure. Of rest, and then I start screaming A's, like at least twenty A's in the first five pages. Now, and for I... our listeners, okay. <laughs> we have to we have to give them a little music nerd cue. If you think that the note that thrills you most when a soprano sings it is a C, right? The A is just a step or so away from that. So it's you have a, a mezzo soprano, which is a lower voice to begin with. Living in soprano territory. Yes. Scary. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. I said, I know. I actually said to my son, I think maybe this is for Don Upshaw. So if we could go back and rewrite all of it. Um, so he had to, I mean, he had to change the entire opening. No A's left. There was not an A left behind. So that made me very happy. But, and I said, did you, did you get a chance to listen to that CD? And he was like, no. That's <laughs> my favorite. That's, that's John. It's, it's classic John, yeah. right? Uh, I know because I'm I'm the high part, which is so funny that I'm Mary Magdalene is the high female part in that 
in that oratorio. But um, yeah. So but where, was, whereas someone like Osvaldo Golihoff uh, thrives on the improvisation that comes from his aesthetic, John Adams is very different. That is Talk true. a little bit about your, his working method as, as it relates to singers and, and what you've taken away from working with John. That's so interesting. Exactly, because I came from this, you know, this tradition with Osvaldo, which was, um, I don't know, sing whatever value you want. It says um, improv. I don't know. Uh, do we, you know, I had this girl covering me when I was singing Lorca one time. She said, oh, you know, you're singing this, these rhythms wrong or this. And I said to Osvaldo, I said, I've been doing this for years. Why haven't you told me that? He's like, I don't care. I mean, he doesn't care. You know, I mean, he just doesn't, it's not. He's like, it's great what you do. I don't need to tell you that you're singing a wrong rhythm. That's like the least of his worries. But um with John, there's so much that would fall apart if I didn't sing exactly what's on the page that I think it's very important that you that you are always where you are meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so the challenge there is finding the freedom in it. I don't want it to sound like I'm counting or right. doing math or, right. <laughs> you know, especially when you memorize things like this. It's interesting. Um, and I found that that helped me a lot when I forced myself to memorize a John Adams because then it's just in my body and I'm not just looking at the music and just very, you know, fatuated, infatuated with that. Well, that's Um, fascinating because it's what instrumentalists say about the music of Aaron Copland. When you listen to it, it sounds so free and easy, but when you rehearse it, it's frightening. Robert Spano says he would rather do The Ring than trying to have to rehearse El Salón Mexico because it is just so demanding of you rhythmically to get it right. And John's music is very similar. That's true. The whole, I mean, the whole, yeah, the whole thing's going to fall apart if you can't. Especially for me in the opening scene in Mary, it's with chorus, it's the the orchestra is playing so, I mean, it's gangbusters. It's, you know, it's 10 pages of very intense, don't mess up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and I just, it's, but it's great because it's really forced me to, um, you know, not just embrace my love of, oh, I can do what I want, and you know, this is my voice and myself, and getting in touch with that. But I still have to be a good musician. I mean, I can't just do what I want up there. And you know, it's it's been it's been a really good challenge for no, me. No, particularly in an oratorio with a, you know an eighty or ninety piece orchestra and a hundred and twenty piece chorus and other soloists. And you are the title character. It doesn't mean that you have license to run all over the stage like a crazy person. Exactly. Musically or otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we've we've dived right in as we always do, Kelly, when we're when we're together. But I'd love to spin back and talk a little bit about how you came to music in the first place. What was what was the thing that that caught you about this art form? Well, it's actually it's so funny because my mom says my kindergarten teacher said I could sing. So I guess I've just been singing forever. I don't know what I was singing in kindergarten, <laughs> but you know, no one in my family's musical. Um, huh. And my first choral con- my first choral conductor in elementary school, she was my voice teacher. Where did you grow up? In Clovis, California. Um, now, does that make you a Valley girl? Uh, <laughs> the Central Valley is that how it works? Yeah, Audrey McDonald is also from Fresno, California, so that's go. a pride, pride moment for me. But um, yeah, so I was always in choir, elementary school, junior high, high school, every choir I could be in. I was in like lunch choir, after school choir, morning zero period choir. It was like show, show choir. choir. I did all of them. <laughs> I loved, it. I love making music in a group. Uh-huh. It's still, and that's to me, it's like that's why those operas when I had those moments. In Flatermouse, we were 
a unit oh, yeah. making the it. big Dewey you know, Doo ensemble. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you don't feel so alone. When I have to get that up there and sing an aria by myself and the orchestra so far away in the pit, everyone's so far away, I feel so exposed. <laughs> so for me, I love having the orchestra on stage with me. I feel like we're collaborating. The, mm. You know, the conductor's right there. It feels like a security blanket for me. It's so funny. Um, so that's why when you find those instances, you know, it's like, oh, maybe I can do more opera. I think I can do more opera. I mean, this was so amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, because you have uh, you have been equally known, if not somewhat more known, as a concert singer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're you're discovered as uh, having a voice from the age of kindergarten, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Did you start taking formal voice lessons fairly early? What did you do um, about training? I think so. Yes, probably around middle school. So I might have been twelve or thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was singing. Um, my voice really, really wasn't what it is now. <laughs> no surprise. But I sang a lot of soprano, which is very interesting. But it was very, because it was all head voice, it was like this right. not connected and amazing thing. So it's so words, funny. When you say you're using head voice for mm-hmm. our listeners, that means you are you are basically singing almost a little bit like a flute. In yes. other words, not not really trying to support it as a, an opera singer would have to support it to project it into a hall. Right. Almost like falsetto, let's like say. For, it is, yes, yeah. exactly. Like Got mostly it. falsetto for okay. me, for most of. So I actually sang soprano one or two in choir for a long, long time. And then my senior year in high school, I sang alto, which people would just be in shock about. You know, and then when I went to USC, I mean, I didn't have any, I guess I developed an ear. That's what I actually am, I, that's what I can say about myself. I will pick up something very fast, but I don't have any sort of wonderful plan for learning music. I can't read music very, I can't sight read at all, which always surprises people. But when I went to um, USC, um, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, I auditioned for choir, and the <laughs> conductor there said, you're gonna have to work really hard. You really wanna be in chamber choir? And I said, yes, but I had to spend every day in a practice room because I have to plunk out the notes. I mean, I couldn't, you know, but I did also pick it up. He would put these incredible sight readers around me and I would just pick it up. Like I can pick it up very fast, but that's. It's that good ear. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the that ear. mimic ear. Yeah. Mimic, Someone should yeah. probably do a study someday as to what is the gift of mimesis and mm-hmm. how does it develop and how do, how are some kids gifted with it and others not, because it is true. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're if you're a good mimic, you're probably a quick learner. Right. To boot. It's true. It's so interesting. So you're so you're singing in choir. You're you're at USC. I did the sets for Turn of the Screw. I moved the sets for Cenerentola. I did the spotlight. <laughs> I mean, I was behind. Do you have your union card? <laughs> no, I was everything but on the stage for operas. It was amazing. Wow. Yeah, and then choir, you know, we toured, We were doing all these tours. I went to Bulgaria, I went to France with choir, and I did all of that. But So how does this opera career begin then, this <laughs> professional singing career? I know. I, I just, it was all, I don't know, fate. It's so incredible. I mean, I, I auditioned for things. Maybe because everyone, you know, at school was doing it. I didn't, I don't what, think. What, young artist programs? Yes. Or you, okay. Tanglewood. So that Tanglewood, I was at school when I auditioned for Tanglewood. And then right. Osvaldo um, heard me. And then when I was there, my agent's parents go there every summer. And they heard me in a master class. I was singing WC, a WC song. And they for came the up to me. For the formidable Phyllis Curtin. For Phyllis Curtin. I believe I was I folded over a chair trying to free myself or something. And uh, 
so the, this couple came up to me after the after the class and they said our son's an agent and we think you're fantastic and he's still my agent today <laughs> so it was just we, everything we shouldn't came keep together. our listeners in suspense that agent <laughs> is named William Pellant yes yes and Bill started his professional life at Tanglewood himself as a guide yes in one of the very first summers I was working for the Boston Symphony Orchestra and uh, Bill has gone on to a, a wonderful career, first at the Metropolitan Opera in the rehearsal department, and then flying on his own wings as a wonderful artist manager. He's really at the nurturing kind, isn't he? He is. Well, and you know, to be so open to exploring my concept of mostly concert work, <laughs> which you know is, I don't think a lot of singers necessarily say that to mm-hmm. their agent. Um I'm finding more people nowadays are wanting to do it because it is so, so short. If you have a family or something, it just it's, it's a better way to go. But I just always, that spoke to me, that just doing that music, making music in that form. We <laughs> talked about it a little bit a moment ago about how it feels in some way rather safe yeah. because you're surrounded by a musical family, the orchestra. Uh, the chief in charge is usually right to your left <laughs> if you're if you're if you've got a real solo. So the conductor's on the podium with an eye shot. Um, talk a little bit about some of the pieces in the concert repertoire that you really love and would you know walk a thousand miles to sing over and over and over again. Oh my gosh, there's so many. You'll be forgiven if you say Mahler first. Of course. <laughs> it has to. Well, he has to be in there. Yeah. I mean, anything by him. <laughs> Well, I mean, ugh, there's just so many. But I, yes, as I said, Das Lied von der Erde, which I've done several times, but actually Donald Runnicles told me I should do it. And I thought at, at first when I looked at it that it was too hard. I thought it was too big of a, it was too much to chew. <laughs> well, let's remind our listeners that the last, uh, the last movement is 17 minutes long and you're singing nearly continuously. Yes. And you carry you carry the can, as it were, to the finish line in one of the most amazing pieces of symphonic vocal music ever written. It's true. So it's a big responsibility. It's true. It it's is true. a symphony. I mean, it's his ninth symphony. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so for me now that I've grown into it and I've taken time and years and tried out different things, and I just feel like I can say so much with it. Mm. When I do it, you know, I just feel really like it's something special and I it's interesting because I returning here I've done it here with Louis we did it I guess two years ago with the Cincinnati Symphony and a bass player came up to me two three days ago and said you I just wanted to tell you that you blew me away and I've listened to every recording of that and I think you're just the best I mean it was just so moving to have someone come up to me years later and say you were really spectacular it was like I was watching an opera he actually said that to me he said it was like you didn't just sing it so we've got Mahler Second Symphony, Mahler Third Symphony, Mahler Eighth Symphony, Das Lied von der Erde, <laughs> Ruckert Leader. Have you ever ventured the Kindertotenlieder, or is that a? I haven't done that yet, but yeah. um, I would I would love to sing those as yeah. well. And the Wunderhorn, I believe I love the Wunderhorn songs because there's so much personality in them. Talk a little bit, if you would, uh, about what is it about Mahler's musical aesthetic in particular that. That seems to connect with you. He is just my my sole composer of the dead ones. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It feels so vulnerable to me. I mm. feel like he's expressing. He doesn't hold anything back. Right. And that just speaks to me. I'm I'm of the same. I'm cut of the same cloth. And you know, I really appreciate that. And every part of the orchestra, everyone is exposed. Everyone has a solo. Everyone has these moments. So it's just we're all really creating this 
this place, this magical moment together. Um, and it's just so human, you know, so many of his, what he, what he shares is just relatable to so many people. I mean, Mahler too will continue to, you know, move people forever. It's just always relevant. You, you hit on something there, vulnerability. I think one of the hallmarks of, of Mahler's style and when it's done badly, it's hard on the sleeve and it can be a little bit maudlin. But when it's done with a kind of restraint with some of the great conductors you've gotten to work with, Louis Longre here, Donald Runnicles, Robert Spano, all of your, all of your favorite conductors, um, it has a power to make us reassess our own vulnerability. Uh, we walk around with all sorts of armor in life. We have to, I guess, to survive. But when someone is there saying things that we only dare say in the privacy of our own minds sometimes and and says it with such a genuineness and such a directness you can't help but respond to it um do you remember the first piece of Mahler you sang it was Mahler too which is definitely not a bad way to yeah. <laughs> again though you know that piece i mean i have a love hate entire relationship with it because it is so it makes me feel so many things that I almost feel as if I can't sing it. It's huh. almost debilitating to do it because there's so much that comes before you as well and you kind of rise out of the orchestra and you have really a moment of, you know, it's it's just a lot to bear, I find. So sometimes sometimes it's easier than others mm-hmm. <laughs> to take. But, oh man, it's just, you know, and any piece with a chorus again because I am yeah. a chorus girl. Um, but that's fascinating because as you put it just now, the Mahler Second Symphony is this incredible journey towards resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, the first movement is basically the funeral of his hero. Um, and we know from Mahler's writings and such that he was stuck. He he did not know how to finish the symphony, and it was actually the funeral of um, of a colleague where it sort of came to him how he would finish this this mammoth undertaking. Um, and so you're right. You carry you carry a tremendous burden in making that final transition into the, the the hopefulness that is the finale of the piece. Whereas in the Mahler Third Symphony, you're another panel in this amazing altarpiece that has several panels of what you know, what the birds tell me, what nature tells me, and eventually, of course, what love tells right. me. So Mahler Third Symphony must be a little bit easier because <laughs> you're. You're sort of a standalone song, yes, as it were. Yes, yes, and yeah. it's exactly it's it's a actually that's my favorite one. Just mm-hmm. for the fact that I get to sit on stage for the last movement, the last movement of Mahler Three is my absolute favorite piece of music. It's thirty minutes of going to heaven and back, exactly, and back and forth. Yes, yeah. exactly. You have Andrew, to go and come back. <laughs> yeah. It's extraordinary. No, it right. is extraordinary. So, I mean, again, sorry, that's so much of my love for Mahler, but I've been so lucky to kind of go from new music. And then to go back to Mahler, which is definitely not, again, the traditional way that a lot of careers work. But it's been so fascinating to me to come back to these um, non-living composers, having learned so much about myself. I think that's been a blessing, that I feel very secure in myself and my artistry and how I can bring it to this instead of feeling so overwhelmed by the history of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been much better. It's m- much better for me to do it that way, I think. <laughs> As a living, breathing performer, I'm sure we all have uh, uh, days when we think, yeah, no, that was pretty good. And days we think, mm, I could have done better. Do you have any internal measurements for if a performance satisfied you or not? 
Um, I actually really go off responses that I get from people. I love if people, if someone has moved to come up to me and tell me anything about it, I, it's definitely a success just because that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. I'm just really trying to communicate and make you think and make you be present and experience what I'm telling you instead mm-hmm. of it just being something that you see from a distance and you're not part of. Um, you know, I really want people to be active in um, my performance. Um, and I actually cannot worry about the sound. For me, if I worried about production and um, if I cracked or not, I probably would crack more. So, um, but I found it more liberating now that I don't, I don't take that as a, you know, well, that note could have been better. It's always like, well, I could have been, you know, maybe I should have conveyed that in a different way. I try to do it with related to the text or how I'm telling the story. So your measurement is expressivity, not accuracy per se. Not that I'm saying that you're that you're uh, you're allowing yourself to be improvisatory as Osvaldo (laughs) Golihov let you, but it's whether you made a connection with the text. Yes. And whether that moved an audience member rather than just making a pretty noise. Yes. So well, it's a different kind of bel canto, really, if you think about it, because uh, bel canto is yes, technically beautiful singing. But it's also words on a line that move an audience beyond the melody itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you do both opera and you do symphony concerts. Mm-hmm. What about recital work? Do you do you do, do you get to do some recital work from time to time? I and that do. is that scary because it's just you and a pianist on stage. <laughs> I think it probably matters who the pianist is. Um, sure. You know. Um, but again, I've been lucky. I did um, a recital here. Uh, with Louis Langre, and I also did a recital with Donald Ronicles. I really like collaborating with conductors because mm. I just have such a connection with them already. I feel like that that way I don't feel so alone, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm on stage. But recitals, no, recitals great for me because I feel such a closeness to the audience, and I can tell them, and I can look at them. <laughs> I hope it doesn't make them uncomfortable, but I love looking at people. <laughs> I love actually seeing them and trying to, I'm actually telling you, I want to tell you the story, you know, like when I feel like I can't hold it in and I, I want to communicate to them. So I think, I wish I could do more recitals. I think it's unfortunately not, you know, as popular as I wish it was. was. It's just, there's so much repertoire and it's, it's just an endless, especially for an alto voice. Do you find it at all challenging? In a, in an opera, you have a character Mm -hmm. and she is fairly consistent. I mean, she may grow and she may be in different situations, but you're Suzuki from beginning to the end of the performance. Um, in a symphonic piece, you have your line to sing. But in a recital, you may be 20 different people in the course of that two hours or so. What kind of a challenge is that? That's fantastic, though, isn't it? <laughs> I really thrive on that. Should we be speaking that. to your therapist? You, <laughs> Isn't you, this a therapy session, aren't I? <laughs> no, but for me, I mean, I love that. I love kind of. It's interesting because I'm doing, um, I'm doing the rape of Lucretia for the coming, first time for the right? first time yeah. coming up uh, next month, and she actually really internalizes a lot of her um, emotions and everything that happens to her, and she makes her decisions very quietly. And I think very dignified, very stoic. And I normally am the person that's not like that. So I was telling the director, you know, it's actually a great challenge for me because that's not who I am at all. I mean, I'm very, I would figure out things very loudly. And she, you know, has made the decision and it's, this is how it is already. She's, you know, she does it all on her own. Um, so that's, that's a really fantastic challenge for me. Um 
So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Do you have, you've talked about a couple of your Cincinnati experiences and how gratifying they have been. Um, looking over what is already a considerable career for someone so young, have there been a couple of peak experiences that when someone asks you that question, they come immediately to mind? Well, I, d- I did think of probably one of my most memorable <laughs> moments was um, the first time I sang at Carnegie. I memorable did, for just about anybody, yes. I would suppose. <laughs> Also, because when you sing at Carnegie, you only get that day. I mean, there's no rehearsal in there. You are in there. You have a rehearsal in the morning, and then you're singing. So it's very fast, everything there. Um, And I sang Peter Lieberson's Neruda songs with the Chicago Symphony. And they were, you know, cast before Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, the wonderful, incredible mezzo-soprano passed away, uh, with Bernard Heitink conducting, and she was going to sing them. And so when she passed, I got recommended to sing them and I'd never worked with High Tank, I'd never met Peter Lieberson, so all of it, you know, it just, that was an incredible moment for me to be able to also sing that piece, which now has become almost kind of mine. You know, I've done it with 25 orchestras, which is incredible. And recorded it with the Atlanta Symphony. Yes, yes. Right? And Robert Spano. Yes. So anybody who wants to figure it, listen to it, they can. <laughs> they can, please. Yes. So describe, if you would, if you can recall it, the day and the evening of that performance, some of the emotions you felt, what was it like to step out on that stage for the first time? Oh, my gosh. That's a massive place. Stern is definitely unlike anything. The big auditorium. The big auditorium there. Yeah. It's just unlike anything. And, you know, I um, there was a lovely, lovely um, stagehand backstage who said, have you been in here before? And I hadn't. And he said, let me take you. And he took me up in the balconies after the – it was fantastic. So I had this whole – You know, because, again, I'm the only soloist, which you know how I feel about being alone. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, you know, I was kind of experiencing this on my, you know, by myself. And uh, so it was really wonderful to feel that reception there. And, um, you know, we had done it in Chicago the week before. uh, And I really that's a really fantastic band as well. So I felt I just felt such a connection with High Tink and the pieces and Peter Lieberson came and, you know, he was sick at that time. You know, he he um, too died of cancer he, not long after. That's right. right. Um, but he was there and my father was there. Um, so it was just so many things. But again, I get to come with a piece that's, you know, by a living composer. I mean, it's just been so many things that have fallen into place for me have been the right situation. So if you could... Um if you could dream up a project um, for your voice and your temperament, whether it's a, a song or an orchestral work or even an opera, what are some of the things you'd like to you'd like to express? Oh my gosh! Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> Just what's in your what's well, in your artistic wish list? I guess I know. You know, I really love making different sounds. I think I would really love to do, you know, I love singing the burial folk songs because I can do so many different things with my voice and people just can't believe that's one person. And I love that. You know, also because it just challenges me to figure out my instrument. I mean, what what are the limits? What can I do? What shouldn't I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so I think, um, I think that would, I would really love to have another, I've, I've been trying to talk, talk, you know, sell it out a little bit to try to find another Barrio. I would like a modern sort of Barrio folk songs, new, more folk songs. I think I really, really relate to that. Any um, particular tradition? Do you want to go into the, 
the the Eastern European folk tradition, the South American folk tradition. The, I think I both mean, of those. Yes, definitely. I mean, I have a Portuguese background, and I love Portuguese, and I would love to have something in Portuguese. Um, but composers, it, uh, if you're I, listening, <laughs> I know, Portuguese. Um, you know, but I think yeah. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much out there. And again, like I said, I think it's. The comedy was such a surprise to me. I would like that challenge again, but the right situation. <laughs> and also, you know, kind of, I like exploring doing things not in the way I would do them. You know, because at first you get cast, maybe because that's how you are. That mm -hmm. could also happen. That's easy you know, for a producer to exactly. say. Exactly. That's Kelly O'Connor. That's Kelly O'Connor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So for it might role. be nice, you know, to not go against type. A yeah, little bit. to go against. I would like that. I don't mind a challenge like that. I feel like I've learned so much mm. from. I mean, I never. If you had told me I was going to be in an opera where I spoke with a Russian accent, I know. No, no, no. That was never going to happen. No, never. For Evans, that's what happened. But then it lit it just liberated me. It's amazing what you also, what you know what people, because that's a challenge. I don't, I, you know, no one had cast me as Orlovsky. Yeah. So it's great. Well, but a lot of that comes from, I think, uh, developing trust, mutual trust between a performer and a producer to know that uh, he or she has your best interests at heart. And that's rare. Uh, in any in any business, mm -hmm. to find that level of trust, and it's one that uh, doesn't come easily because, but it does come with experience. It does come with experience mm -hmm. and with time. But when you're um, when you're looking at your life as a performer, would you like to do more opera? Or are you pretty happy with the sort of couple times a year that it happens now? I mean, what's what's the balance? What's the ideal balance for you? I think that's good. Yeah, I've got one this year. I'm, I think that's good, <laughs> you know, because, I mean... Um, so is there an opera that you want to be cast in that someone hasn't cast you in yet? Well, I have not done a full-staged Carmen, and it needs to happen. <laughs> I've sung it in concert, and I'm telling you, I was very surprised by how that... I can sing that very well. <laughs> and I wouldn't just say that, so... And yeah, you could act and, up a storm. Well, but also... But that's also a different side that I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily as obviously a sex kitten, if you would say. Um, you know, am I, at first I thought I might be a little awkward mm -hmm. as, a, <laughs> as a Carmen, but it's been great to kind of find my own Carmen. You know, there's so many Carmens. I mean, you can oh. just go down a rabbit hole of like, well, what and, should I do? And it's one of the things that makes it uh, a treasurable opera because it doesn't, need to be done just one way. We've seen Carmen's who are cool and mm -hmm. collected and fatalistic and know that that knife is waiting for them from the first moment you see them on stage. We've yeah. seen Carmen's who are impetuous and you know, live for the moment and uh, their thought process is uh, almost feral, you know, it, and yeah. everything in between. Right. It's one of the reasons that it still gets produced by nearly every opera company nearly every year because it is an inexhaustible well. Um, That's true. And there are a hundred different ways, if not a thousand different ways to play Carmen. Yeah. That's a very nice hint. <laughs> I try. So of, of the, of, uh, as we affectionately call them, the dead composers in concert, are there pieces you haven't done yet that you'd also like to do? Concert work. 
Um, Dream of Gerontius, I have not done, and I... You'd be a wonderful angel. Yes, I would love to do oh, that. Yeah. I think I would really... And there are pieces I haven't done a lot that I'd love to do. I did a Vase and Donk Leader, which again was a very challenging, scary thing for me because that's very, very high and mostly soprano sing it, but I yeah. loved it. Um, and but you know there's a version by Hans Werner Henze for a small ensemble that's set lower. lower. It was written for, it was actually written for a mezzo. Oh. He adjusted See, it. no one tells me that, and yeah. then I just, <laughs> forced to sing the high notes. But it was a very good challenge. Um, so I loved that. I love the sea pictures, the Elgar. Oh, the Elgar sea pictures, yeah, right. There's, I mean, and I mean, I'm just, I'm just really fortunate that I get to sing so much good rep. There's so much wonderful concert repertoire for an alto, you know? I mean, I'm almost always... <laughs> You're all, you're busy. Happy. Yeah, and everything I sing is very, I mean, at this point, is just really fulfilling for me as well, you know, and I don't ever want to lose that because I think there's danger, there's a danger that that could happen. Yeah, how do you stay fresh? How do you, how do you, how do you keep yourself fresh uh, as an artist hard. and unjaded? Exactly. I mean, that's, that's a const, that's a life struggle, you know, I'm sure it's just, you know, and there are always going to be sometimes where... Okay, well, I I might be phoning this in. I mean, I never, I really, really don't want to do that. Um, so I try, try to be present. And even, you know, in this day and age with so much social media, so much on your phone, it's it's nice for me. I always try to not have it when I'm making the music, you mm-hmm. know, to not, don't bring it on stage. Don't bring it. It's just. Don't bring it separate. into rehearsal. Room. Yeah, let's just separate from that and be present in this moment. Again, that's good for us. Just for like, we are bombarded nowadays with visual <laughs> so much and i think it's just it's wonderful to just slow down the pace and what? try to live in the moment that's great advice for a young singer and i'm sure lots of young aspiring singers will be listening to this um and it it comes to that time in the conversation where i am obliged to ask delightedly do you have any advice for young singers starting out because you have had an unorthodox path I know. you haven't done the usual I went to school, I went to a conservatory, I did a young artist program, I found a manager eventually, I did a tour of Europe for auditions. You've done none of that. I know. And you're working. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So do you have, uh, now that I have basically, you know, as it were, uh, said all of the normal career paths are, (laughs) are not what you followed, any, any particular advice, even just sort of general advice for young singers? Well, I think especially with that, I have people ask me that question all the time, you know, like, how'd you get your agent? And I just think, oh, gosh, I don't I'm I know it's very unique. I don't know that I can help you, you know, but I think that also shows that there's not one way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in school, you're just given like you have to go to these competitions. You have to go audition for this thing. And you don't necessarily have to do that. There's not one way to do it. And nowadays it's it. There are so many um, different agents, different ways to go that I think we should not be set in one way is making it. And what is making it? You know, what else? You have to realize what you, what are your goals? What do you want to do? Really? Do you want fame? Do you want to be working at a certain place? Is that what, what are the goals that you have? You know, to me, it's not about the place. It's about the music that I'm making and what I'm saying. So I don't necessarily care if it's, you know, at the biggest house in the world or something like that. Well, to you have me, a remarkable record of working with smaller organizations as well as larger ones. And you don't, you don't, you seem to be living proof that there are no small places. There's just wonderful opportunities that sometimes occur off the beaten path. Exactly. And I think it's important that we realize that those aren't 
um, inconsequential. You know, those do make a difference, and it is important that we still do that. You know, it's not just the big gigs that make you. You know, it's fascinating for me to look at the recital tours of some of the great performers of the ancient past. I looked, I, I read a biography once of Yasha Heifetz. It wasn't a biography of Heifetz. It was actually the autobiography of a man who was his manager for a while in the late 1950s when Heifetz was already beginning to wind down his career. He played tiny towns. I mean, I looked, he printed an itinerary of one tour of four weeks that Heifetz did, and he went to places that that probably had one stoplight. But his name is Skylar Chapin, uh, who eventually became the manager of the Metropolitan, and uh, he said Heifetz believed that there was, first of all, good music goes everywhere, and that there are people who deserve to good, hear good music everywhere. So it's, it was a real eye-opener for someone who, who could have just played Carnegie in Chicago and Los Angeles every year and be, been happy. No, it's true. It's true. I think, and again, you're even reminding me. Like, as you're saying this to me, I'm thinking, Kelly, you need to do more of that. Because we get lost, and it's easy to kind of see things, again, because of, you know, the internet and things that exist now that people didn't have to worry about, you know, decades ago. I mean, it's incredible to, well, why aren't I doing that? Why aren't, you can compare yourself to so many people. And I think that's a very dangerous thing that younger singers can do is, you know, everything that we see, or most things that we see on the internet are curated and controlled and decided and chosen. It's not real life necessarily so you these are good moments i mean i'm guilty of it as well so don't necessarily think that these people who you know seem to have these wonderful lives it's all it's all you know this fantastic thing it's the varieties of musical experience that make it a life worth living exactly hopefully i mean that's what i love what i thrive on and working with people that i love and making music you know as a collaborator, I think that just, it makes such a difference to just really also experience your life. And I have to tell myself to go out of the hotel room sometimes because I get so in my head or worried about my voice or performing or a piece can really work me into a a very scared state. And I have to remind myself that it's going to be okay. <laughs> you know, I can go you outside. You put in the hard work. Yes. You and put I mean, in the hard work. You know, it's, you have to live because that's what you're also using to communicate, you know, you need these experiences. So don't get too caught up in your head. I think that's so dangerous. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> and we're going to uh, end as we end all of our conversations with a group of um, <clears throat> questions that we use for everyone. So okay. you're joining a very illustrious company. Oh, fantastic. What do you usually have for breakfast? I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> you don't eat breakfast? I don't. Not even a cup of coffee. Maybe a coffee. Okay, definitely coffee. Okay. Coffee. We'll go with coffee. How do you deal with stress? I work out all the time, any type, any type, any way I can. <laughs> Who was, if not your most important mentor, an important mentor? Don Upshaw. <laughs> what are you reading right now? I'm attempting to read The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Oh, the Kundera book. <laughs> yes. Wow. I'm trying, but the, I said attempting. That's all right. Attempting, is, <laughs> attempting counts. That okay. means you're opening the book and it's, you're putting it in front cracked. of your face. It's good, it's okay. <laughs> um, are there TV series or podcasts that you enjoy? I do. I mean, thank goodness for all of these these things on the internet now. I am obsessed with the tidying up the Marie Kondo. It's changed my life as well. It will change your life, people. Um, <laughs> podcast, again, I was telling you, I love Here's the Thing. I love Fresh Air, anything. just It's so great to have all these at our fingertips. Just constantly. Especially for a traveling musician. Yes. It's just, yeah. really, it enhances your life. Are there applications on your phone that you find particularly useful and helpful, either in your work or in your life? 
The Zero app, which is my fasting app. <laughs> what is the Zero app? <laughs> it's for fasting. It controls you. It lets you see how long you've been fasting. I oh. like to fast. Um, also, any music. I mean, I listen to Spotify. All. I mean, that's just a treasure trove um, all the time and Pandora. Um, I try to use those mostly and try to stay away from the social media ones. <laughs> now now that you've just talked about fasting, is there a, you've been to Cincinnati a lot. Is there a restaurant you enjoy particularly? <laughs> all of them. I'm such a foodie. That's why I fast. Um, <laughs> yes, I will be going to Metropole later. I love Metropole. For it's that. a favorite hangout of Cincinnati Opera that folks. Burnt so that's carrot nice. salad is really good. But I just, that's one of my joys in life is to just read well, don't food. I remember that you and Jessica Rivera used to make a habit when you were working on engagements, particularly in your as you were both starting out, you seemed to be cast a lot together. Carrot cake. Yes. Everywhere you went, yes. carrot cake was the most important thing to find. Exactly. And we would make it. And also... <laughs> That's right. Um, any particular piece of career advice that you've had that has stuck with you that's very strong? Um, I think early on I was really told that I should not try to um, be somebody I wasn't. And that has definitely <laughs> been a very um, strong calling card for me that I uh, have listened to that. And I think it's important nowadays to do that and try not to mold yourself to be anyone else. Your favorite musician outside of classical music? Oh, this is a tough one. I one think, favorite musician I know. Outside we'll go Nina classical. Simone. I mean, can you? it's fantastic. Any just all out there female singer, I'm about it. <laughs> Now, since you do spend some of your life in opera as well as concert music, do you have uh, do you have a line, an elevator speech for someone to try opera for the first time? <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is that I feel that when people meet me and I say I'm an opera singer, they almost fall down. I mean, they don't expect how I look. They're like, no, 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 you can't. Something comes out of your your body that's loud. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Besides so your laugh, I think yes, exactly. <laughs> but I do think that that's actually how I look is such a good. They they're kind of fascinated. Like, really, this is this is what maybe opera could, does look like. I don't know that that's necessarily something that you know people um, associate with opera. So it's just funny. I always get that. No, no, no. There's no way. And then I can't believe that came out of your body. Well, then <laughs> come and watch me do it. Exactly. exactly. So it's uh, you know I think they uh, they're always surprised that you can be personal and chatty as well. Kelly, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>